Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. This morning, please prepare our hearts to receive your message. Speak for your servant hears. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Our passage this morning starts off on a dismal note. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. Welcome to Christ the King on this fourth Sunday after Trinity. We simply hope that the word of the Lord will never be rare in this church. We started on the book of 1 Samuel three weeks ago, and for those who have been with us, you know that at this stage of Israel's history, they've got a big problem. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. And why was the word of the Lord rare? Why did God stop speaking? Because Israel no longer obeyed God, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They rebelled against God. They abandoned God. And the spiritual leaders of Israel were no better. Priests like Eli's two sons did not know the Lord. They've corrupted the priesthood. It was a sinful nation. And their sin took them down on a downward spiral. Because Psalm 66 verse 18 tells us, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And so sin kept Israel from listening to God, and sin will keep God from listening to Israel. And God was giving Israel the silent treatment. But God was starting to change the trajectory of his, Israel's history. He's got a plan to put things right. And it wasn't through a mighty army or a powerful miracle, but through the prayer of a humble woman, barren and inconsequential by the world standards, and from an equally inconsequential place called Ramah in the hill country of Ephraim. And to this barren but faithful woman was given a son, Samuel. And our passage this morning is about the call of Samuel. I'd like to look at our passage in three sections from 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, contrast. Verses 4 to 14, call. And verses 15 to chapter 4, verse 1, change. Contrast, call, change. And I'll conclude with two observations. Firstly, contrast. Chapter 3 starts with verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. I want to compare this with chapter 2, verse 11. It's just on the other side of your Bible, the other page. When Samuel was first brought to Silo, this was what was said of him. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Almost the same phrase. But can't you see the difference? In chapter 2, we are told that the boy was ministering. But in chapter 3, we read that now the boy, Samuel, was ministering. Samuel's name gets a mention here. And in contrast, Eli, who was addressed as Eli the priest in chapter 2, 
now simply becomes Eli. A contrast is intentionally being made here. A contrast between old Eli and young Samuel. One on the ascent and the other on the descent. And in verse 2, we're told Eli was lying down at his own place, almost blind. Again, perhaps a hint that it is not just about old Eli's eyesight that is of concern here, but also the picture of his spiritual blindness, very much like the condition of the nation Israel. And on the other hand, Samuel, we're told, was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. And as you know, the ark contained the tablet of the stone upon which the covenant was written. And here was where God was believed to be present. And here was where, we are told, Samuel was lying down. Samuel, the boy, at this point in time, was probably closest to the ark, both physically and spiritually in Israel. But God's starting to do something. Verse 3, the Lamb of God had not yet gone out. Now this is a lamb in the tabernacle which was lit from evening to morning. And because it had not gone out yet, we know it was still pre-dawn. Again, here I think the author is trying to tell us a little bit more than just the timing of the day. The message seems to be that despite the state of Israel and its leaders, God has not given up yet. Hope is not yet totally extinguished. There is still hope. Secondly, call. What really left with little doubt as to what this chapter is all about. The word call or called or calling occurred about 11 times in this passage. This chapter is about the call of Samuel. God called Samuel in verse 4 and Samuel's response was immediate. Here I am, he replied. And prior to this, you may know that there are two other critical times in Israel's history when God called someone, and we hear the response, Here I am. In Genesis 22, verse 1, uh, this was Abraham's response to God when God tested Abraham and called him. In Exodus 3, verse 4, this was Moses' response when God called him from the burning bush. And in both cases, you know what happened. God called Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his son, his only son. And in Moses' case, God called him to stand up against the mighty Pharaoh of Egypt and to rescue his people. You can almost expect that Samuel will be also called to do something difficult. And so young Samuel heard the call, ran to Eli, but Eli said he did not call Samuel and asked him to go back to lie down. And when this happened a second time, we read in verse 7, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Now this is meant to explain why Samuel did not know who was calling him. But it raises even more questions. How can this boy who wears an ephod, who, who serves at a tabernacle, who ministers there, not know the Lord? And, and, and what makes him different anyway from the sons of Eli, whom we are told in chapter 2 verse 12, that they did not know the Lord? Well, here's the difference as an important one. The sons of Eli did not know the Lord because they were morally and spiritually corrupt. For those who have been disobeying God and defying Him, it's not possible for them to know God. Samuel, on the other hand, did not yet know the Lord because God's Word had not yet been revealed to him. Samuel was still waiting to be called by God. 
And after the third time, Eli perceived it was the Lord calling Samuel, and he taught Samuel to respond accordingly. And so the fourth time round, we are told in verse 10, that the Lord came and stood by Samuel, calling Samuel's name twice. Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel responded the way Eli taught him. Speak, for your servant hears. I don't know what it meant for God to come and stand by Samuel. Did he come in the form of man? I don't know, but, but Samuel knew. And he recognized the authority of the one speaking to him. And the message God had for Samuel was a devastating one for both Eli and his two sons. God was going to do something so severe that the two years of everyone who hears it will tingle. You see that in verse 11. Years will tingle. Now that's an expression in those days to mean that what God's going to do will give rise to great fear and dismay. It is used on two other occasions in the Old Testament. In 2 Kings 21 verse 10, and in Jeremiah 19 verse 3, and in both instances it's about God's judgment. It's about God bringing disaster upon His people so bad that their ears will tingle, those who hear it, which means they will experience a stinging sensation. As an analogy, it's like you know the former World Cup champions Germany losing to Mexico in their opening game last week. I mean, if you were German, your ears would tingle too, right? Well, fortunately, they redeemed themselves yesterday to beat Sweden 2-1. But for Eli and his son, at judgment time, there'll be no redemption. God is telling Samuel what he plans to do with them. God's repeating the judgment against the house of Eli in chapter 2. And what were their sins? It bears repeating. For the sons were told in verse 13 that they were blaspheming God. They profaned and desecrated the sacrifices to God. And the sacrifices to God in those days were the very means by which sins were forgiven. And when you desecrate, when you profane it, there's no other means of atonement. It's like when you're drowning in the sea and someone throws you a life buoy, the only means by which you can be saved. And what did you do? You reject it and you scorn it. And so you shouldn't be surprised that you can't be saved. And that's the sins of the sons. And for Eli, the father, by not restraining them, both as their father as well as being the high priest, is complicit in what they did. Now I want you to consider this truth for a moment. We know that the sacrifices of the Old Testament point to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so like the sons of Eli, when we scorn at the cross, when we treat God's provision of salvation through Jesus on the cross with contempt, we are depriving ourselves the very means by which our sins can be forgiven. There is no other means of atonement. And that's why the writer of Hebrews writes in uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 to 29. And let me read it for you. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, that no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think 
will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which she was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. End quote. It is a scary thing to scorn the cross of Christ. Thirdly, change. And so verse 15, Samuel lay until morning, and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. You know what they say in any organization, right? Bad news travels upwards very slowly. And for Samuel, I can imagine this must have been for him sleepless in Shiloh. How else can it be? The very first message that God wants him to proclaim as a prophet is against the man, the very man who brought him up, who taught him everything about the temple, the roles of the priests and the Levites, who helped him answer God when God called. Someone who calls Samuel, my son, in verse 16. I can well imagine Samuel getting up that morning, hardly sleeping that night. He did his usual routines, opening doors. He must have swept uh, the place a thousand times, polished all the cups over and over again. Anything, anything that will help him avoid Eli. It is a tough assignment to tell someone that they have gone wrong to rebuke sin. But that's the basic point about the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is good news because the bad news is so bad. And unless someone is willing to accept the bad news, they'll never fully understand why Jesus died on the cross. It's such good news. We cannot avoid the offense of the cross when we proclaim Christ faithfully. But Eli cornered him. And I can well imagine the conversation that took place between Eli and Samuel. So what did God say? Well, He said He was a God who fulfilled promises. What else did He say? Well, He said He was going to do something in Israel. Something like what? Well, something that will make the ears of those who hear it tingle. Are you trying to hide something from me, Samuel? Well, he didn't really say much, just a few sentences. Look, Samuel, if you don't tell me what God said, I'm going to ask God to do so to you and more if you hide anything from me. And so Samuel tells Eli. And I want you to look at Eli's response in verse 18. He said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Now again, I don't know the tone by which she said this. Was it a defiant tone? Or perhaps a resigned tone? I think it's more the latter. It's hard to characterize Eli, isn't it? He's a complex man. Like perhaps many of us here. There's no easy definition. Unlike his sons, he's certainly a man who knew God. And his response, I think, is one of quiet and resigned acceptance of God's judgment. There was perhaps a tinge of regret. But he's been weak, tired, and ineffective, capable of compromise. 
inclined to take the easy route to turn a blind eye to the obvious sins of his two sons. But in his answer, we see a man who knows it's time to pass the baton to a younger person. There will be change. A change in the leadership in Israel. And indeed, their roles have already been reversed. You see, just a short while ago, Eli had to help Samuel recognize God's word. And now he has to rely on Samuel to hear God's word. Just like Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, isn't it? God raises up and brings down. Verse 19. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Now, the expression in those days, to let a word fall to the ground means that what has been said did not come to pass. It did not happen. But none of Samuel's words fell to the ground. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 21, Moses had a test for a true prophet. Let me read it for you. Verse 21. How may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? Moses said, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. End quote. And so here we are told, God ensured that what Samuel said came to pass. Samuel's the real deal. He speaks for God. And God is legitimizing Samuel's prophetic ministry here. Verse 20, And all Israel from Dan to Bathsheba knew that Samuel was established as the prophet of the Lord. Now if you know the geography of Israel, Dan is the northernmost town in Israel and Bathsheba was the uh, southernmost town. And so all of Israel, basically from north to south, accepted Samuel as God's prophet. And previous leaders in Israel exercised authority only in small areas of the country. And so for the first time since Moses, Israel had a national prophet. Verse 21, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. You see how it's done? God spoke his word to Samuel, and Samuel spoke it to the people. And that's what a faithful prophet does. And that's what I hope we do here each week as we preach. That we proclaim God's word faithfully. Not ours, not mine, but God's. And God's only. And you can see what a change. At the start of chapter 3, we had Eli, the high priest, the leader of Israel. And by the end of the chapter, the baton has passed on to Samuel, God's prophet. At the start of chapter 3, the word of the Lord was read those days. And by the end of the passage, we see God's word being faithfully proclaimed in all of Israel. From a famine of God's word to a feast. And this chapter surely marks an important turning point in the history of Israel. Now let me conclude and I'll conclude with two observations. The first is, God's word for us. Our North American culture is in a crisis, an identity crisis. And it's not just about gender identity. I, I know we have the fight break going on today. 
But it's also a more fundamental question about who we are as human beings. Our culture of consumerism, of individualism, of narcissism and so on has not helped. We are very confused about who we are and whose we are. Our culture is in a crisis. Our church is in a crisis. Churches in Canada are seeing sharp declines in membership in the last few decades. And consequentially, more and more churches are being closed down and, and so off to developers. Like Israel during the time of Samuel, I believe the word of the Lord is rare today. And this is not from a lack of Bibles. There are more Bibles available today than any time in our history. The word of the Lord is read today because the word of the Lord is not read today. It's not read privately at home. And in many churches, the Bible is not even opened during the worship service. We have a famine of God's word. And that's a shame. Because a prophet much greater than Samuel has come. Jesus has come. The writer of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors, to the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. You see, we have the greater prophet, Jesus, the very Word of God. And Jesus is the prophet and the Messiah that has been promised in the Old Testament, and fulfilled in the new. And like Samuel, we all need the word revealed to us. So let us not let the word of God be rare in our lives. Let us not let the word of God be rare in our families. Let us not the let the word of God be rare in our churches. My second observation is this. God's call to us. None of us here, I think, would have the opportunity perhaps to have God come and stand by us, calling us as He called Samuel. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't speak to us today. Today, God continues to speak to us through firstly the Holy Spirit. Remember when Jesus went away, He told His disciples that the Holy Spirit would come to teach them and to guide them into all truth. John 16, verses 12 to 13. The Holy Spirit continues to do that for us today. So let us be actively praying for Him to guide us as we make life's decisions. Secondly, His Word, the Bible. And I believe this is the primary way by which God speaks to us today. The writer of Psalm 119, verse 105, which we'll sing later on, puts it this way. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Bible illuminates our path and guides us in how we should live our lives. I sincerely believe with all my heart that if we make it a priority in our daily lives to read and to know the Bible, we'll find the answers to many of our life's questions. Thirdly, the church. God speaks to His people. Colossians 3, verse 16 tells us, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. 
We have this great privilege of speaking the word of God to each other, to teach one another, to encourage one another, and to help each other navigate life. And so let us make full use of this resource. Make it a point to know the people in our church. Not just some superficial highs and buys each week as we come, but really striving to want to build really deep, Christ-centered relationships. So that people in this church will know you well enough to speak into your life and to guide you as you navigate life's decisions. Don't settle for a superficial relationship here. Go deeper than that. Okay, so God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit, the Bible, and the church. But you may well ask, can He be clearer in terms of what He wants me to do? Where does He want me to live? And what job does He want me to take up? Who to date? Who to marry? Which church to attend? On this last question, I, I have a prophetic word for all of you. I believe you're all meant to be here at Christ the King, so stay here, don't think of going anywhere else. Okay? I think questions like this might seem very important to us. And I'm sure they are. But in the overall scheme of things, by God's reckoning, they will be what I think He considers second-level details. And so what are the first-level details? What are first-level details of importance? I think God has already made His calling to all of us clear, to you and I. In fact, we know from the Bible that He calls us in three very important ways. First of all, He calls us to enter into His kingdom and to share His glory. We see that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let me read for you. For you know how, like a father with his children... We exalted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. We are called to enter His kingdom and to share in His glory. We are called to be God's people. Have you responded? Here I am. Secondly, we are called to live holy lives. Again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. As God's people, we are called to a life of holiness and sanctification for the sake of the praise of His glory. Have you responded? Here I am. And thirdly, we are called to use our talents, our treasures, and our time to do God's work. To serve others. Matthew 25, verses 35 to 39, Jesus said to the righteous, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous asked him, When did we do all these things? And Jesus replied, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. We are called to serve others. And that's why D.L. Moody once said, Every Bible should be bound in leather, shoe leather, 
See, our knowing and our belonging must lead to our doing. Have you responded? Here I am. God is still calling us today. Like Samuel, let us all be ready to respond. Here I am. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.